Hey everyone, it's time for the weekly recap. I'm Corey Babechko. We're reading through the Bible in a year, and today we are covering Bible Discovery's reading plan from Hebrews chapter 5 to 1 Peter chapter 5, so all the way through 1 Peter. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, this continues on the theme of Hebrews that we've already seen, which is talking about the greatness or the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Because remember, this author, whoever he is, is writing to Jewish Christians. Uh, so he deals a lot in Old Testament imagery uh, and language, legal language that uh, Jews would really understand and gravitate towards. So this is where we are. Okay, so we learn in Hebrews chapter 5 that God gave the honor of sonship and the high priesthood to Jesus Christ. Uh, even though the the high priesthood given to Jesus Christ, it wasn't the Levitical high priesthood because Jesus wasn't a Levite. Uh, the Bible says here that Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is going to be made more clear in the next chapter. So let's look at verses 7 to 10. It says this, During the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So being made perfect there is not like a like a sin issue. It's like being a, a go, going to his proper place in heaven to the right hand of the Father. But he had to go through that obedience. Jesus learned obedience. He learned what it meant to be obedient to God through suffering, which was a really important part. According to the author of Hebrews, it played a really important part in his high priesthood. I guess I should say that in the present. It plays a very important part in Jesus's high priesthood because he can empathize with us. He can understand. All right. Also, there is this warning in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That is a harsh criticism. Uh, you know, it's hard for us to make this clear to you because you no longer try to understand. So apply yourselves, try to understand. Uh, and we learned that spir spiritual maturity comes from constant use of the teaching of the Bible. Uh, so constant, you, using constantly in your life the teachings of righteousness, attempting to apply them. And in this way, we learn how to distinguish good from evil. All right, Hebrews chapter 6. This implores the Hebrews to become more mature, to interact with those teachings of righteousness by that constant use principle. So that continues here in chapter 6. Then it goes into a section that talks about if you know God, truly know God, and walk away from him, you cannot be restored. Now, 
I know that this is a really hotly debated verse. It's con it's a it's a hotly contested verse. Um, but I think it's really safe to say that this is a solemn warning that if you walk away from God, if you decide to hate God, you can. God isn't holding Christians hostage, saying like, you can't leave. That That's not what he's doing here. If you choose to walk away, you can. Now, I also don't think that um, this, this, you know, turning away from God, I don't think this is about, when you look at the verse, I don't think that this is about sinning and being remorseful, you know, Christians sinning and feeling bad. Uh, or I, I don't even think that this is about having doubts about God. This seems to be a purposeful rejection of a God that you know is true. That's why it says it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, etc. There's a, there's a bunch of other qualifiers. So this seems to me to mean a purposeful rejection of a God that you know is true. Um, however, this also, this chapter also does say that true faith produces, it produces stuff in your life. It produces good works. It produces the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So make sure that you're growing. Take a test. Look at your life. You know, I don't mean like a written test, but take, take an inventory of your life and, and ask God to, to grow you and to teach you and, and work towards that. You know, apply yourself. It's not a run one way street. God's not doing all the work here. We're putting in that effort to interact with the Bible and then try to apply it to our lives. All right. Hebrews chapter seven, Melchizedek. Here's where it's finally going to kind of explain that link between Jesus and Melchizedek. So it gives a brief explanation of who he was. If you remember all the way back in January when we were looking at Genesis, we came across Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, uh, likely uh, the early city of Jerusalem, and he was a priest of God. And just as the parentage of Melchizedek was unknown, it's not recorded in the Bible, he definitely wasn't a Hebrew because the Hebrews descendant from Abraham and Abraham pays him tithe. So he's clearly not a descendant of Abraham. So just as Melchizedek's parentage is unknown by the Jews, uh, he nevertheless is immortalized in the scriptures as someone who was a priest of God, even acting as a priest for Abraham, their forefather. So the idea here is that Christ is like that. Christ is like Melchizedek. He's not a priest because he is a descendant of Levi. He's outside of the Levitical priesthood. He's actually from the tribe of Judah through Mary. So Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek because he, he is a priest of the new covenant, not arbitrated by the Levitical priests at all, but by himself. So the Levitical priests have the old covenant and now Jesus in this order of Melchizedek comes in with the new covenant that was prophesied by the prophets. All right, Hebrews chapter eight. So Jesus is spoken of here as the high priest in the 
heavenly tabernacle. So the earthly one is said to just be a shadow of reality, not reality of so itself. It's, it's symbols. It helps people understand who God is, but that's not actually who God is. It's just helping you understand who he is, who he is and how he works. That's all in heaven. So these things were just a shadow of things that are in heaven. Uh, it also talks about how the old covenant has been made obsolete now because it's been fulfilled and the new covenant has come through Jesus. All right, Hebrews chapter nine. Uh, this contrasts how things worked in the earthly tabernacle to how things work now with Christ. So Jesus was the sacrifice that enabled us to serve God, not animal sacrifice, Jesus was the sacrifice. He, he is forever now the sacrifice that enables human beings to serve God. Uh, speaking of the work of Christ, I wanted to read you verses 27 and 28. They say this, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So this, this is what we have to remember about the return of Christ. It's not for some grand left behind victory moment. That's not what this is about. The return of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of our faith. It's the, the bringing of salvation to those who are waiting for him. It's the coming of the kingdom of God for real. Okay. Hebrews chapter 10, this chapter talks about why Old Testament sacrifices had to be offered again and again. So why you had to offer multiple sin offerings, why there were daily offerings, why there were yearly offerings, but now why Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. How did that happen? Why did that happen? It's explained here in Hebrews 10. Um, it talks about how the Old Testament ways were less perfect than Christ. The law itself, now it's moved beyond the tabernacle, now it's the whole law itself was a shadow of the truth. And Jesus is the actual truth. So it's a foreshadowing of him, it's a symbol of him, and now he's fulfilled it. The real thing is here. So the conclusion in Hebrews 10 verses 22 to 25 says this, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one, uh, one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So it gives us that, that reasoning then why Christians need to gather. We need to encourage each other. We need to build each other up in Christ because this world is not easy to live in when you're trying to live for Christ, which I think all Christians know as they mature in Christ. Hebrews chapter 11. This gives us examples from the Old Testament of faith. It gives us two rounds of faith. The first round has Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And then there's even more examples given after that. But a main point throughout Hebrews chapter 11 is that 
all of these Old Testament figures were required to and did live in faith. They lived trusting in who God is and arranging their lives and making their decisions based off of who God is. It talks about how they still, even though they lived in faith, they still did not receive the fulfillment of their faith in their lifetime. So the coming of Christ, they did not have that salvation of Christ, though they were saved. But then it segues into, so how much more should we be faithful because we have Christ? We have the fulfillment of the law. We have the fulfillment of the Old Testament faith. So we should be even more faithful than the Old Testament figures. Hebrews chapter 12, I wanted to read to you verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Okay, so there's a couple things. I'm not used to the NIV translation when it comes to this. I've memorized most of the scripture in New King James. That's just the, the tradition that I grew up in. So it's funny to me, like reading, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That word pioneer is different. I believe in the, its author in the New King James, the author and perfecter of faith. Sometimes it's the author and finisher of faith. But here I like that, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Okay, um, back to that first verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. That great cloud of witnesses is is referring back to Hebrews chapter 11 and all of those Old Testament figures who um, their lives serve as witnesses to us. So this cloud of witnesses, they're not witnessing us. They're not watching us. They're witnessing to us. They stand as testimonies of God uh, and of faith in God. So because we have that, Let's just throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let's run the race that God has set for us, whatever that race is, whatever hurdles there are, whatever territory, you know, we rough territory we, we have to go through, let's do it. Uh, we learn in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Old Testament testifies of faith and Christ testifies of faith. This is important. This is important because remember who the audience of this book is. It's called Hebrews. It's for Jewish Christians. So in addressing Jewish Christians, it's emphasizing the Old Testament scriptures and it's emphasizing faith in God over the works of the law. So when you keep that in perspective, this, this emphasis of the Old Testament testifies of faith and Christ testifies of faith. Uh, so it, it makes sense when you consider the audience. 
It goes on to encourage uh, the Christians in, str in their struggle against sin, that it's worth it to struggle against your own sin uh, and the world's sinful ways. you got to struggle against that too. Uh, and the advice given here is accept these struggles as the discipline of God who's making you better. God's disciplining you. He's helping you grow more in him. There's advice on how to live uh, and just very briefly, basically live in peace with everyone and don't be like Esau who sold his birthright just foolishly because some things can't be undone. All right, I think what's really interesting also about Hebrews 12, and then I'll move on, is that there's this mountain analogy. Again, this is a, a Jewish Christian book. You haven't come to Mount Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion. What does that mean? Mount Sinai was terrifying. The people were scared of the mountain. It was on fire. Moses went up there for 40 days and he came down with his face glowing. This is a scary place. Even Moses says that he was afraid. There was lightning and thunder and trumpet sounds. So the author is saying, you haven't come to Mount Sinai of fear. You've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. So be joyful because you're forgiven. You have access. Uh, and, and this is mixed in with a lot of super cool Old Testament imagery. I like it. Okay, Hebrews chapter 13, this final chapter in Hebrews, there's just final remarks of things that you should be doing as Christians and then final goodbyes and, and greetings to wrap up the book. All right, James, the book of James, James chapter one. So this was authored. Uh, it says, James, servant of God uh, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for James, just to write this, there's really only two Jameses well known enough to not give any other identifying marker when they're writing a book like this. Uh, and because uh, James, son of Zebedee, was murdered really early on in history, you can read about it in Acts chapter 11, the only one who could be writing this was James, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who we also read about in Acts. And, and church history testifies to this being uh, a letter written by him as well. Okay, so James chapter one, this is to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So this is likely to the Jewish Christians who had to flee Jerusalem when James was murdered, when Stephen uh, was martyred. Uh, so people that this James, who's called James the Just, knew that had left Jerusalem. So this is probably who he's writing to. There's encouragement given in James 1 uh, for when you're facing trials and temptations. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Okay, let's break that down. So what are these Christians to do? They're to endure trials of many kinds. What is it that they are to pray for? Wisdom. 
And then there's instructions on how to pray. Don't doubt when you pray for wisdom. Don't allow yourself to be tossed like a wave in the wind. Stay the course. Stay the course. So James's advice when you're going through trials is pray and stay the course. Then there's many more rich teachings in James chapter 1 like, like this one that I struggle with a lot of times because I work with my family, my older brother and my mom and my dad. And we are tight. We are best buds. But also when you work with your family, you know each other really well. And so you're not afraid sometimes to not do what this says. It says this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Okay, James chapter 2. Do not show favoritism is a big theme of this chapter because favoritism is evil. Verse 8 says this, If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So don't give favoritism to anyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. All your neighbors, not just the one you like the best or the one that will benefit you socially or economically or politically to love. Okay, verses 14 to 17 of James chapter 2 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So what does it say about your faith when you have no follow through, when you have no actions to back up what you say? It says that your faith is dead. And then James in the rest of chapter two goes on to demonstrate this more. So deeds, good works, follow those who are saved. It's not the avenue through which we are saved, but it is absolutely a marker of being saved, of having true faith in Christ. James chapter three, ah, uh, the danger of the tongue. What a classic chapter this is. Just like horses can be told where to go by a tiny bit, just like ships can be steered with a tiny rudder, so humans are steered with their tongues. The direction of your life is based off of how well you control your tongue. So says James chapter 3. Uh, verses 9 to 10 say this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Uh, then James chapter 3 goes on to teach what wisdom looks like. Uh, basically, deeds done in humility. James chapter 4. Okay, so James says it like it is. 
all the way through James. But in this one, in chapter four, he tells them why there are fights among them, arguments, jealousies. He's like, well, it's because you're evil. It's your own evil. You got to deal with that. The solution is found in verses seven to 10. It says this, submit yourselves then to God. Submission means obeying. Ah, right? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In other words, do not mess around with this. When you have symptoms of evil in your life, don't mess around with it. Don't just leave it. Don't write it off. Deal with it. James chapter 5. This is the last chapter of James. It contains a warning to people who have become rich off of the backs of others. Basically, judgment is coming. And then James uh, basically turns to the Jewish Christians who are being persecuted again. And he says this, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming right? He goes on to talk about, look at how the prophets were mistreated and yet they stayed true to God uh, In they stayed true to the truth. Uh, he goes on and he says, if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing praises to God. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church to pray for you and anoint you with oil. Uh, and then he gives, he wraps it all up with a bunch of concluding advice. That's very interesting. All right. First Peter, First Peter chapter one, we're just cruising through these New Testament books. So this book is Peter, the apostle to Christians uh, in five different Roman provinces, probably that he's visited before. So he gives an explanation of the hope of salvation. Uh, you know, this idea that we have the mystery of the Messiah revealed to us. We know salvation. When the prophets of old who spoke about the Messiah, they spoke about salvation. They wanted to know, but it wasn't their time yet. So we've been given this amazing privilege. So let that helps sustain you through your suffering. First uh, Peter chapter two, he talks about how Christians are like stones being built into a house to glorify God. And he goes, you know, you may be rejected stones, just like Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected, but God is still building you. He goes on to say this in verses nine to 10, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter's almost using this Exodus-like language to speak about the Christians, right? So when Israel became the people of God, they were in Egypt and God miraculously brought them out of the land of Egypt and formed a new nation and a new covenant with them. And now Peter is saying, you know, God, Christ, called you out of darkness. You were under the bondage of sin and God called you out of darkness and he brought you into his wonderful light. And once you weren't a people, but now you are a people, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So he's making this comparison to Christians. Uh, 
he also encourages them to live godly lives in light of this, right? In light of being representatives of God, live godly lives within your pagan society. So don't, don't become corrupted by your pagan society. Live godly lives within it and despite it. First Peter chapter three. So Peter has just told everyone to, uh, in the end of chapter two, he tells everyone to submit themselves to the governing authorities for the sake of being a witness of the gospel. It's, it's tough to read because you know the Roman government is awful and it just strikes our modern Western values so bad. They're not fighting for their rights. They're not standing up, right? Not that they really had that option back then. But Peter's just told everyone to submit themselves to the governing authorities so that they can be good witnesses of the gospel. It's removing distractions so that the only message that matter can be sent by the Christians, that Jesus is the Christ. It's this idea of live such good lives that you're noticed for it. Uh, so then 1 Peter 3 moves on to not just citizens to the governing authorities, like the government, but now, or slaves to their masters, because that was also in 1 Peter 2. Now it's also wives to your husbands. Why? Peter explains it. That way, if any of your husbands don't believe, if they don't have faith in Christ, they may listen to the gospel because of you. So this is a cultural, like, like be such a good wife that they listen to you. Give them the gospel. And he encourages them that true beauty is in godliness, not in outward appearance. And then he moves on to the husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So in other words, what Peter is saying to husbands here, if you beat your wife or if you take advantage of her because you can, you know, you're physically stronger. And in Rome, the law did not protect women. So you legally could get away with it. You will be in trouble before the Lord. He says, you know, uh, um, do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers, right? You're going to be in trouble before the Lord, the ultimate authority. Then he goes on to say, to talk to Christians about how to struggle well with sin and with, uh, with people on the outside who are persecuting you or maybe looking at you like you're crazy or shameful. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't repay insult with insult but repay evil with blessing. He goes on to say, you know, if you suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Don't be afraid, but, but, but revere God in your hearts. In other words, don't be afraid of men. They can't do anything. Be afraid of God. Revere him properly. God's above all. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Give that answer with gentleness and respect. So these really lofty goals going on. First Peter chapter four, this is all about living for God. And it gives some practical advice on what it looks like to live as Christians, specifically in a society where you're being mistreated for being Christian. And the end of the line, like the, the, the main point is endure it. Endure persecution endure suffering. I wanted to read to you a few verses here. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So in other words, don't make yourself a troubler of society. Don't be that person who who is a Christian, but they're fighting on so many different fronts that you don't even really know that they're a Christian, right? If you're going to suffer, suffer only because you're standing for the name of Christ. Um, you know, he's given already, Peter's already given his advice to live a quiet and respectable life within the society that you find. Not because it's going to be easy, but because our main priority as Christians is living for God and being ambassadors of him to this world. So sometimes you have to make sacrifices to fulfill your main mission. Sometimes you're not going to be able to say all the things that you want to say, all the justice things that you want to say, because your main mission is living for God. All right, last chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is instructions to the elders of the churches uh, about how to care well for the people. Uh, he talks also to the younger people about being humble and submitting to the elders who are trying to take care of them. And we also learn that Peter is with Silas uh, and with Mark, John Mark. Uh, so Silas has, you know, Silas has traveled with Paul before, and now Silas is traveling with Peter, or he's with Peter, wherever Peter is. Uh, and uh, Peter calls Mark, John Mark, his son. So just like Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith, probably we have a situation here too, where Peter has kind of taken John Mark under his wing and under his discipleship. Uh, we also learn that Peter is probably writing from Rome, the city of Rome, because he makes reference to being in Babylon, which was probably a euphemism for Rome at that time. All right, and that's it. We have recapped another week, a couple weeks away from finishing the Bible, which is really exciting. Let me know how you're doing with your reading. If you have any questions about the reading this week, we have some really exciting recap news coming for 2022. It may or may not involve expanding the recap and bringing my husband Matlock along for the ride. I'm excited. It should be good. More on that later. Talk to you later. <laughs>